Please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Acts 20. Today we are going to look at verse 32. Just one verse today. This is a benediction of sorts that Paul gives near the end of his time with the Ephesian elders. And of course, this gives me a wonderful opportunity to mention benedictions and why we end our worship service with one and what they mean. Well, the word benediction comes from two Latin words that mean to speak well of. You could say the word means to wish well or to bless. And as we think of benedictions, probably the most well-known one that we are the most familiar with would probably be uh, Aaron's blessing, which is in Numbers 6. The Lord bless you. And keep you, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So that's an example of a benediction. And so these benedictions, these words of blessing, of well-wishing, is something that is pronounced by the minister at the close of a worship service. And we actually see the Lord Jesus do this. This is our example. If you look at the very end of Luke's gospel, you will find there a benediction. Just prior to the Lord ascending to heaven, we're told that he led his disciples into the countryside outside of Jerusalem. And he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. Well... We aren't told the exact words he spoke, just that he uplifted his hands and blessed them. So that's why we do the same thing at the end of our worship service, and it's what I believe Paul is doing here. What's happening during a benediction? I mean, are are we just simply wishing someone well? Is this the Christianized version of a traditional farewell or parting blessing? When I think of traditional parting blessings, I think of the old Irish one. I won't read the whole thing, but it goes, May the road rise to meet you. May the wind always be at your back. May the sun shine upon your face. Right? Are we we doing the same thing, but we've just picked words from Scripture? There is much more going on in a benediction than there is in just a farewell blessing. The benediction at its root is concerned with the spiritual blessing that God gave to Abraham and to his offspring forever. In Genesis 12, we read God saying to Abraham, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Right? That's the promise. That's the promise. It, God, uh, it, what, what was this blessing that God spoke to Abraham? It was that he would give Abraham himself. He said, I will be your God 
You will be my people. That's the blessing. God gives himself. I will be God to you and to your offspring after you. And so this covenant relationship with God is the blessing. And so the benediction we can say is God's words spoken by God's ministers received by God's people by faith. And this blessing has been handed down from generation to generation. It was spoken in the temple and then later it continued into the church and is still practiced today. How did that happen? How how did it happen that this blessing that God promised to the father of the Jews and to his children, how did it come to Gentiles like us? I've said this before. I don't know about you, but my ancestors during Abraham's time were probably... Uh, running around northern Europe or the British Isle as pagans, running around the woods naked, worshiping tree spirits. How did the church, or Gentiles like us, receive this? What gives us the right to this blessing? Paul tells us in Galatians 3 that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law By becoming a curse for us, so that in him the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us, so that in him the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. That's what happened on the cross. The Lord Jesus redeemed us and purchased us out of slavery to sin. He freed us so that the just curse that applied to all lawbreakers would not hang over our heads. And he did so by becoming a curse for us. He became accursed so that we might be blessed. He was cut off and forsaken by God on the cross so that God might become our God. He did all the work so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And it's through him and him alone that the blessing of Abraham has come to us. That's why we still say this benediction. Why do we lift our hands? Why do we raise them? You know, why don't... I just do like a Catholic priest and make the, make the cross. Well, I want to quote David Calhoun. He's a professor at Covenant, Covenant Seminary. He says, It is a gesture of reception. A symbol of God's mercies coming down upon the congregation. The minister receives and passes on to the people the blessing of the presence of God and the peace that God gives. Which is why I will say, receive the benediction. Receive from heaven 
by grace, through faith, the mercies of God and the peace of God and the presence of God. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord Jesus became a curse for us so that the blessing of Abraham, I will be your God, you will be my people, will come to us. And I think we have something similar here in verse 32. We have a benediction that could be rightly used at the end of any Christian worship service. It's a blessing that Paul is bestowing on these elders. We're going to look at it together, but first let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the scriptures and that they are able to make us wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So help us now then to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest. And all for Jesus' sake. Amen. Our text is Acts 20, verse 32. Would you look there with me? And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. So Paul begins by commending these elders and their flock back in Ephesus to God. What does it mean to commend? There are several uses of the word, but if you happen to have an NASB, New American Standard, you're already clued in to the usage. To commend is to entrust someone or something to someone. Right? Molly and I commend our daughters to the babysitter. Right? We, we love our daughters. They are too young to be left at home alone. And so we hire a babysitter. And we go to dinner. And we entrust our girls to the babysitter. We see Paul feeling something similar. He says, I'm going to Jerusalem. I don't know what will happen to me there. Probably never going to see your faces again on this side of heaven. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock because wolves are going to come into the church from the outside and they're also going to rise up from the inside. And so I commend you to God. I've got to entrust you to His care. Now again... If we understand this with a babysitter, some of you, I'm not there yet, but some of you who have older children, maybe you're standing at the front door or the kitchen window, but you watch them get in a car all by themselves and you watch them drive away from the house. And you're kind of left with thinking, Lord... I entrust them to your care. There's there's nothing more I can do. Or perhaps you have 
buried one or both of your parents. And you have the funeral and then the graveside and their body is placed in the ground. And what you are left with is, Lord, I entrust the care of their soul to you. They are with you now. You will look after them. And so I can rest. Paul is, again, saying something similar about these dear ones who were purchased by the blood of Christ. I'm never going to see them again. It's not going to be an easy, safe road for either of us. So, Lord, I'm entrusting them to your care. Remember that when you start a good work, you complete it. Remember that you've promised that when you give eternal life, they will never perish and no one can snatch them out of your hand. You know, in those same words and those same promises apply to you And they're spoken over you every Lord's Day as we close our service. Every time a benediction is given, it's pronounced, I'm entrusting you to his perfect providential care. But it's not only that he looks after us, but he also helps us. Molly and I have to hire a babysitter because there are things that are beyond our girls' ability. Things like cooking a frozen pizza in the oven. We don't want them doing that. They need a babysitter's help. Not only are they entrusted to someone who will watch over them, but someone who will help them to do what they are unable to do themselves. Calvin gets at this in his commentary. He says, Paul had already, been de- had already been dealing with weighty, difficult matters far beyond human ability. Which was care for the church of God. And Calvin says, so he turned to prayer. It was like saying that they would be unable to bear such a great burden, but that he wished them fresh help from heaven. I want you to know that I don't expect you to love your family by your ability alone. I don't expect you to be a blessing to your neighbor by your ability alone. I don't expect you to carry your burdens and pursue holiness and grow in grace by your own power. Rather, like Paul, I ask the Lord to not only be with you, but also to give fresh help from heaven so that you would be strengthened by him. Paul says, I entrust you to God. I commend you to God. And then he continues, and to the word of his grace. What would that be 
You know, when we, when we read this, maybe our first response is to see this maybe as uh, something pointing to the gospel or something pointing to the word of God or the scriptures, but I think this is something different. I think that Paul is entrusting the saints uh, to the Lord Jesus who is called the Word. In John 1, we read, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. I think Paul is talking about Jesus here, and to help me make my point, I'm going to use probably four quotations from John Gill. If you don't know John Gill, he was probably the greatest English Baptist who stood not only in the traditions of the Reformers, but also the Puritans. And he would disagree with us on baptism, but about everything else, we are right in line. And he was very helpful here. He says, Christ is the word who in the everlasting counsel and covenant spoke on the behalf of all his people, asked for every blessing for them, and engaged to be the surety of them, and is the word who in the beginning of time spoke all things out of nothing, and now is the advocate and speaks for the saints in heaven as well as he has been the word spoken of by all the holy prophets from the beginning of the world. Paul is saying, I'm leaving. I won't see you again. But I'm entrusting you to God and to the word of his grace. I'm going to entrust you to the one who agreed to die before you who agreed to die for you before the foundation of the world. I'm entrusting you to the one who asked his father to give you every blessing. I'm entrusting you to the one who is your surety, your guarantor, your pledge of good. I'm entrusting you to the same one who created everything out of nothing by his voice. And also with that same voice is now your advocate and speaks for you on your behalf in heaven. Another reason I'm convinced this is speaking of the Lord Jesus is, I mean, this, we need to remember, we don't, we don't worship the scriptures. We aren't kept by the scriptures. We're grateful for them. We're eternally grateful for them. We must have them. But we don't worship the scriptures. We worship the one the scriptures reveal. Paul is not entrusting the Ephesians to the scriptures. He's entrusting them to the one the scriptures speak of. We don't want to put the written word on the same level as the divine being. And you could say the same thing with the gospel. Paul isn't entrusting the Ephesians to the gospel. 
later he'll actually say that he entrusts the gospel to them. Right? The gospel doesn't care for the saints. The gospel doesn't keep the saints. It's the opposite. He'll write to the Thessalonians and say, you have been entrusted with the gospel. He will not leave these people to anything other than God himself who is capable of keeping and preserving and perfectly caring for them. So I believe when Paul says, I'm commending you to the word of his grace, he's talking about the one in whom the grace of God is most greatly displayed. Here's another John Gill quote. All fullness of grace dwells in him. He is the author, donor, and object of all grace. And so a, pro- and so a proper person to be entrusted to. Jesus is a proper person for me to entrust you to. The last reason I think Paul is talking about Christ here is that everything else that follows applies to him. He says, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. Dear Ephesians, I am entrusting you To the master builder, you need to be built up in faith, in love, in holiness, in Christ himself. Here's a picture of the Christian. If you want a simple image of a Christian that you can understand, I want you to think of a house that is set on a slab foundation. It it is an unfinished house. The the Christian is like an unfinished house who is set on a foundation. The foundation has been poured, it's laid, it is sure and stable. And that foundation is Christ. And yet the house is unfinished. The stairs may be rickety. The walls aren't plumb. The corners aren't all square. There might even be times when a wall might fall down, sending up a cloud of dust and debris. And yet the foundation remains unmoved. And the master builder continues his work. Strengthening where we are weak. Adding support and bracers where necessary. And over the long years, making us more and more complete. There's a text I stumbled across in in my study. And if if you need to know, if I drop dead this afternoon, this is my funeral text. Psalm 138.8 The Lord will fulfill His purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. That's Psalm 138.8. 
master builder, do not forsake the work of your hands. This is who Paul is entrusting them to, the one who will build them up. And I get to my final John Gill quote. He talks about how Christ builds up the church corporately and also how he builds up the Christian particularly. He says, it is Christ who builds the church and every particular believer. The saints are built up in him, the foundation, and so are safe. Yet they stand in need of building up or of edification. He'll go on to say that the church corporately is built up as the Lord brings men and women to saving faith in Christ and brings them into the church. They are new additions to the building. But then individually, he says, particular members are built up when they grow in the exercise of grace, when their spiritual strength increases, when their understandings are more enlightened, their judgments better informed, their memories filled with divine truths and gospel doctrines, and when their wills are brought more in line with God's and their affections set upon things in heaven. Christ, the master builder, is not only building his church corporately, but he's building up people individually. You are an unfinished house, sitting on a firm, immovable foundation, and the builder on sight will not forsake the work of his hands. We'd be helped to remember whenever we begin looking inward and thinking this is something we do all on our own and in our own strength and own power. We'd be helped to remember Psalm 127.1, which says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. This is something he does. He will build you up. And then what does Paul say? He will give you an inheritance. What would that inheritance be? The glories of heaven? Eternal life? A home? And a place that Christ himself said he was going to prepare for us? An inheritance that is described as imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us, guarded by God's power. Paul says, I'm entrusting you to the one who will build you up and give you that inheritance. What does it say about you if you're receiving an inheritance? It says that you're an heir. You're a child Paul is reminding them, he reminds us, who we are in Christ. An inheritance belongs to the children. Remember that promise to Abraham, I will bless you and your offspring after you. And so he says, God, I'm entrusting these dear ones to you relying on your promise that you will build them up and they will grow in grace until they see and possess the inheritance Christ 
purchased for them. That's what entitles us to this inheritance. That this, again, is something that Christ has done for us. That is always the answer. I mean, if you think, what entitles me to this inheritance? The answer is never you or anything in you. And this is a perfect segue into the last words of this benediction. Among all those who are sanctified. Right? It is the righteousness of Christ that entitles us to this inheritance. Now normally, when we think of sanctification, we think of it as ongoing. But notice the tense here. Let's get grammatical. Notice the tense. It's present. Paul doesn't say, I entrust you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are being sanctified or who will be sanctified one day. No, he says, those who are sanctified. He is speaking of something that has already been accomplished by God. You are sanctified. Now, of course, there's still work to be done. You're still an unfinished house. You're still being built up and repaired. And that reno won't be finished until you're in glory. And yet, you currently possess all the righteousness needed to own this inheritance. You have everything required that makes you fit for heaven. This isn't a one-time thing. Elsewhere in 1 Corinthians, Paul will write, he'll say, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. And then a few chapters later, he's he's giving a, a list of sins and sinners. And then he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we understand this? I'm almost... I'm almost done. We understand this with a theological term that you need to learn and remember. It is double imputation. Double imputation. My sin is imputed or credited to Christ and his righteousness is credited to me. Right? My sin is imputed to him. He died to suffer the wrath and punishment due my sin. He became a curse for me so that I might receive the blessing of Abraham. And then his righteousness, his fitness for heaven has been imputed to me so that I may approach the throne of heaven with boldness. And I might cry out to God as Abba, Father. 
And know that because of Him and because of His righteousness, which I now possess, I am accepted by God and will never be cast out. We have a verse for that. First, 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That is double imputation. And that's how Paul can say, you are sanctified. He's saying, I've got to go to Jerusalem. I'm never going to come back. There are dangers and threats that await you, but I'm entrusting you to God and to His Son, the Lord Jesus, who will continue His work of reconciliation and renewal. And in the end, He will bring you to your inheritance because He has clothed you in His righteousness. I want to end by reciting a hymn that is just one of my current favorites that's always kind of going through my mind. It's A Debtor to Mercy Alone by Augustus Toplady. And I'll read it and then we're done. A debtor to mercy alone, of covenant mercy I sing. Nor fear with thy righteousness own, my person and offering to bring. The terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do. My Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view. The work which His goodness began, the arm of His strength will complete. His promise is yea and amen, and never was forfeited yet. Things future, nor things that are now, nor all things below or above, can make Him His purpose forego, or sever my soul from His love. My name from the palms of His hands, eternity will not erase. Impressed on His heart, it remains in marks of indelible grace. Yes, I to the end shall endure, as sure as the earnest is given. More happy, but not more secure, the glorified spirits in heaven. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this word of blessing that has been recorded for us in the scriptures. God, we praise you and marvel at the fact that the blessing that you promised so long ago to give to Father Abraham might be given to us. And Father, we remember that all credit, all the work, all the labor and the striving was done by our Lord Jesus. And that he was hanged on a tree and became a curse for us so that the promised blessing might come to Gentiles like us. Father, would you help us more and more to entrust to others and to entrust ourselves to your care, knowing that you are faithful and good, that you are not complete in the work you are doing. And we ask you, do not forsake the work of your hands. Continue this good work you've began. And Father, as you do, 
may we remember our foundation and that he has clothed us his, in his righteousness and there is an inheritance awaiting us. We ask all this in the name of our Lord, our foundation, our master builder, Jesus Christ. Amen.